Well, I'm very grateful for your presence today and always very happy to be with you. And it's a wonderful occasion that does bring us together, and that's worship on the first day of the week, and we always look forward to it. Very happy that you're with us, you're visiting with us. You notice our young people are gone visiting, and they're helping support the neighboring congregation, and we're happy that they're able to do that and strengthen them and encourage them. And it'll be a strengthening and encouraging experience for them, our young people as well, and families that support them. So we're very happy that we're in a position to be able to do that. And we're happy to have those of you who are visiting with us today. It's always an encouragement to see you and encourage you to come back and be with us. We meet tonight at 6. Tonight at 6, I'll be talking about the grace of God at Ephesus. I want to look again at the church at Ephesus. I spoke last Sunday night about the one faith that came from a... Ephesians chapter 4 verse 5, but I'd like to look more at the background of the book and how Paul talks about God's great grace and what we can learn from it as we study from the book of Ephesians, I'm sorry, the book of Ephesians tonight. And um, so that'll be my emphasis. Let me say that one more time to make sure I said it right. We'll be studying from Ephesians tonight, and that's what I want to do. This morning, as you'll notice in Romans chapter 11 and verse 22, we have a great passage of Scripture, and it comes from one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of uh, Romans. And you might think, well, that's a little confusing as to what Paul is saying there. Let me talk a little bit about the text. Before I do that, let me mention something of what we're going to go and do today, and that is talk about the nature of God. And I have to tell you that no matter how long you study about this subject, you're never going to get to the bottom of it and study it all. There's just so much that can be learned, and there's so many important lessons that we will never be able to understand everything about God. And that does not come at any surprise to us, because there's so much to God. God is the infinite being, the ultimate being, and I certainly wouldn't carry the idea or the notion that I could understand everything about him. Now, I have to say that about the Word of God. I don't understand everything about the Word of God. I do know certain things from the Word of God, and I can know it, and I can apply it to my life, but I certainly wouldn't be a person who would say that I know everything about God. There's so much that can be understood, but that is vitally important, that I do come to a proper understanding of God and God's nature. And one of the things I'm concerned about, which we see today and which I guess has happened all through the times of humanity, is thinking of God in such human terms, that God is just like another man. You'll remember the book of Job. Job was responding to the problems that he faced, and there's this discussion where you have the three friends, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, and one will speak, and then Job will respond, then another friend will speak, and Job will respond. That's sort of the makeup of the book. Job is suffering severely. He's suffering agonizingly over the problems and the testing that Satan is putting him through. And Job, uh, his family is gone. His, the counsel of his wife has been removed, and Job is suffering physically from the turmoil and the boils and the sores that Satan has put upon him. And so he's making this point in Job chapter 9 that if he could just have an audience with God, if he could just talk it over with God, he would surely come to a better understanding and God would understand uh, the point and the problem that he's facing. And in the midst of this wonderful passage of chapter 9, 
he makes this statement about God. He says in verse uh, 32, For he is not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. And his point is a valid point. God is not a man. And sometimes we look at God in that fashion. We think God is just like one of us. And we think of him in human terms. And it really reflects in the way we deal with God and the way we try to understand God. I guess it's always been that way, that we somehow relegate God to a lower position than what he actually has. Uh, We look upon him as a type of man. But Job is saying God is not a man. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 50 is another great passage of God's Word where God is, through the psalmist, is telling the people that they have gone after uh, false gods and gone after the worship of false gods. And he reminds them again in Psalm 50 and verse 21, These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. That's Psalm 50, and the verse was verse 21. And there again, in this section of the Bible, we see this discussion of how the children of Israel began to think, well, God's like one of us. And he says, now you made the mistake of thinking that I was like a man, but I'm not like a man. I'm God. In the book of Acts, you've got that wonderful sermon by the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill. It was during his second missionary journey, and there as he passes by and he sees all the idols and the idolatry that is there, he's moved and his spirit is moved within him because of the false nature and the falsehood of their religion. And he gives that great sermon in Acts chapter 17. He comes to about verse 23 in this, and I enjoy reading this sermon. I I enjoy talking about it. By verse 24, he's talking about the greatness of God in the sermon. By verse 25, he talks about God's goodness. And by verse 26, he's talking about God's government. And it's just a wonderfully set passage of Scripture for us to learn more and more about God as Paul preaches to these pagan people at Athens. But he comes to verse 23 in this passage And he says in that regard, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. To them it was the unknown God. In other words, they were so concerned about missing one of the gods that they actually made an altar and called it the unknown God. Peradventure that we miss one, let's make an altar to the one we might have missed and worship it too. And he uses that as a springboard to treat to teach them about the true nature of God. And he says, Now it's this unknown God that I really want to explain to you. He's the one that made heaven and earth and created all things therein. And it's, as I said, a wonderful passage of scripture, and I love it so much. But God was unknown to them. God so many times known to us. And I think the problem that the ancients had is the same problem we have. God may be so unknown to us as much as it was to them. In this modern day of America, the Western world, and maybe even other parts of the world, God may be so foreign, the true concept of God may be so far different from their real concept of God. 
The people still do not really understand God as they should. And even though I don't know about God, and I immediately confess that, still there are certain things about God I can truly know and I must know. You know how I say that and why I say that? Because all I have to do is turn on television and watch television evangelists preach. And I have to tell you, I listen to it for a while, but I don't stay long with it because so many things are mixed up and garbled up. There's so much inaccuracy there, it's just hard for me to stand that. And it's clear to me their pontifications as they try to sell Christianity and beg for your contribution. They're in turn, they don't understand God. They don't understand Him either. The only way and God is to go to the Bible, the book of God, and study what it says about God. Psalm 19 says, the glory of God. And the firmament showeth his handiwork and work. And I can surely come to understand something of the divine nature of God by the world in which I live. But if I really want to get down to it, and if I really want to come to know and understand the great God of heaven and earth, the creator of man, the creator of our soul, the sustainer of our life, I'm going to have to get down and get serious with the Bible and study it very carefully. So let me do that. I'm in 1 John 4 and verse 8. What is God? You'll recognize the Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. It's a great Bible passage that talks about the all-loving God whose love perfected. He doesn't love more now than he loved before. He always loves. And everything he does is out of love. Perfect love. Think about God all-knowing. He knows all that can be known. We've been studying Sunday morning Bible class. Thank you, Phil, for these Bible classes you're giving us on Sunday morning about Abraham. And that great passage, I think, about Genesis chapter 17, uh, where Abram is talking with God, and God uh, directs his thinking in that line. And as I turn to the passage... He describes himself. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, and this is what he said about himself, I am God Almighty. Uh, This is the original word El Shaddai. There's a wonderful history about that word. We study the words and the backgrounds of the words and how important they are. And that's a beautiful word that describes the name of God, El Shaddai, Almighty, All-Knowing all-powerful. He knows all that can be known, and he's not any smarter today than he was in the very beginning of our time, as there was no beginning in God's time. He's always existed. He has not grown any greater in power. He's always had the power, all power that can be had, all knowledge that can be obtained. God knows it. You can get the smartest men in the world, give them all the resources you want, give them as much time as you want, and they'll never come up with the wisdom of God. They'll never be able to come as garment as far as divine wisdom is concerned. And whatever they come up with will simply be human wisdom. It'll not be divine wisdom because God is almighty and he knows all that can be known. I want to understand the nature of God. I want to understand his purposefulness. 
That comes up in this point I was making a moment ago out of Acts 17 and Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Boy, it had to be a powerful sermon in his day. This is the God who created and everything in it. He's saying in verse 24, God is sovereign by right of creation. It's not that he created the world out of some need. He didn't have to create the world. He chose to create the world. It was part of his divine mind and part of his divine will. And so he did it. He didn't create it because he needed people to worship him. He chose to do it. He created people with free will to Some will do what's right and some will freely choose to do what's wrong. And God didn't make a mistake in that. He did it because that was the right thing to do. It was God's divine will. And that brings us to Romans 11, our study today. And what a powerful point Paul makes. He's giving a warning to Gentile Christians. I want to warn you here, he said. You and your relationship to the Jew, he uses an agricultural type of illustration here. He uses the olive tree and grafting branches into the olive tree. This is our text. And I'll go back for a moment in Romans 11, beginning in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, that's the Jews who rejected. And you, that's the Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root, we now share in the blessings of God because of being children of God and obedient to the gospel of God. Of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. That's his warning. Don't feel like the branches were pulled off just for you. The branches were pulled off because of their rejection of the Christ and the plan of God. And God into the olive branch or the olive tree and therefore share in the blessings. And he works his way on down to about verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, that's the Jews, neither will he spare you, that's the Gentiles. Verse 22. Note then and the severity of God. Severity to fallen, but God's goodness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. So it's a powerful warning to Gentile Christians. Don't be filled with arrogance and pride over the matter that you're being grafted in, and that you too have the blessings which God shares to all who are obedient in faith. And don't ever forget two points about God. And even though I can't know everything about him, and even though there's so much there I will never be able to comprehend, simply because of my small, finite mind, I can know these two things, his goodness and his severity. So I propose today that we look at these two points. Let's first of all look at the goodness of God, and then we'll look at his severity. When we talk about the goodness of God, God is so good, we've got to come to understand something of his love for us. And, and I've made mention of that already. 
This is the easy part of the sermon for me to preach because it makes sense to me. Though I cannot fathom the great goodness and the great love of God, still God is so loving and so kind. Uh, I enjoy talking about it. He's totally good and he's totally severe. But the good side is a perfect side and the severe side is a perfect side. How can these two be combined together? He's perfect goodness. And everywhere you read in the pages of the Bible, you find that to be the case. Psalm 107 and verse 1. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good. For His mercy endures forever. Psalm 107 and verse 1. That just goes hand in hand with the nature of God, doesn't it? Because God's nature is goodness. God is love. And God cannot lie. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. He's not going to do something bad. He cannot. It goes against his divine nature. He will not. When you go to the Genesis account and the creation of the world, you look at Genesis chapter 1 and God did this on the first day. God did that on the second day. And you go through and you look at how Moses wrote that and how he explains to us about the great creation. And he says, God created the heavens and the earth. God created light. And he saw that the light was good. And you see that formulation six times in Genesis chapter 1. How he said it was good. God did this because it was good. It's part of his divine nature. God is perfect in goodness. J.I. Packer is a denominational writer. I don't mind quoting these men from time to time so long as I try my best to explain to you who they are and where they're coming from. And he makes a interesting statement about this nature of God and the goodness of God. Uh, Packer is a Calvinist. I can't go along with that, and I certainly would um, love to talk to J.I. Packer with regard to that, but he's very popular. You see him in all the bookstores. God's love is of his goodness toward individual sinners, whereby having identified himself with their welfare, He has given himself to be their Savior, and now brings them and enjoy him in a covenant relation. I thought that's a pretty succinct statement to make, a pretty fine statement to make with regard to the goodness of God. It really goes along with the love of God. The goodness of God and the love of God. We studied in John chapter 4 on Wednesday nights about that Samaritan woman. Jesus was working his way from Jerusalem and southern Judea back up to Galilee, and he goes through Samaria, and he meets this woman at the well. And they have that I studied about. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, this is verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan. And then John adds this parenthetical statement, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The love of God. How is it that you actually will spend time talking to me, a Jew? Because of God's love. God loves everyone. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 and 13, You have an interesting situation there where uh, Jesus 
calls Matthew, and we'll study that a little more in our Wednesday night Bible class, but he has a, a luncheon appointment there with the friends and the neighbors of Matthew, and Jesus passed on from there, verse 9. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, tax collectors were hated. It was not that they disliked them. They hated them. And you've talk, you and I have talked about that before. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 11. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Did God require sacrifice of them? Yes, he did. But God is saying you can have all of the formalistic aspects of religion and worship, but if you don't have love for the other person, if you don't have love for the person who's in need, what good is that going to do you? And that's the heart of Romans chapter 5, verse 7 and verse 8. The love of God. The goodness of God, His love for us. The Bible makes it very clear that God is a God of grace. And I'll say just a brief thing about that from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. I love the book of Ephesians. It talks about the greatness of the church and how important the church is that it was in the mind of God before the world ever began and now we're part of it. But he comes to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, and I'll talk more about this tonight. He says, verse 8, For say through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. We couldn't have done it ourselves. God gave it to us. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We didn't do this. We didn't bring this about. Now, I really feel like we start the reading too late. We ought to go back up there and read about verse 4 and work our way on down through into verse 8. But he's saying there in verse 8, it is God's goodness that brought us this grace and that we respond out of obedient faith. We receive God's saving grace and thus he continues to maintain our lives in a loving relationship with him. I often think of Paul's statement in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. You know there are five of these statements In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He's got five of those in this book, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And it's really a good study, each one of them. But he's saying, now you can take this to the bank. This is a trustworthy and deserving statement. Of full acceptance. And what is it? 1 Timothy 1.15. You ought to mark it in your Bible. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. You can put that down. And you can write that. And you can remember. I'm here to save sinners. God's grace. That's what he's talking about. And notice the tense of that verb there. I am. He didn't say I was the foremost. I am the foremost. No doubt in his mind, the sights, the sounds, the thoughts of his prior life 
before becoming a child of God, were still, still with him, even though all that had been forgiven based on his obedient faith to the gospel of Christ and God's amazing grace. Still it was with him, and he couldn't get rid of it. He said, I am, of all the sinners, I'm the foremost. I'm the chief. I am. But because of God's grace, it's forgiven. The goodness of God. Can't plummet the depths of it. God is a long-suffering God. I wanted to bring that out. When I think of the goodness of God, Paul's point in Romans 11 and 22 and 23, don't forget the goodness of God. Oh, how long-suffering God has been. He's been patient with us and patient with us. And aren't we so grateful for that, that God has been long-suffering? He's blessed us. 2 Peter chapter 3, 9 is the passage that I thought of. About this, I always think of this verse as it emphasizes God's desire that all be saved. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. That's his long suffering, you see. Not wishing, but that all should reach repentance. Change your mind and change your life, repentance. Change it. Change the way you look at sin, change the way you look at life, and change the way you live it. Your behavior, repentance. But notice here he says he's not slack concerning his promise. God's going to fulfill the promise. He's not slack concerning men count slackness, but his long-suffering, he's patient toward you. And thank God for that. He's been patient to let us come to understand the gospel, to let us learn it better, to grow and mature as he wants us to grow and mature. I'm thankful for the long-suffering of God. Amen. It's his goodness that brings about his long-suffering and his patience. And it doesn't matter if he promised a thousand years ago or if he made it yesterday. He's going to bring it to pass. It'll happen. It doesn't matter when God made the promise. The promise will be fulfilled in God's good way and in God's great time because he's God. Now I have to get to the hard part of the sermon. It's a hard part. He's severe. And everything I said about you can say about God's severity. He's severe. And he's perfect in that. He said in Psalm 89 and verse 7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in of all them that are about him. Psalm 89 and verse 7. You ought to look at that particular word and that particular verse. And he uses the word there, fear. wonder what he meant by fear there. Fear in this verse. Surely it can't mean fear. It must mean something else. Well, let's see what it means. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 25 through 26, you'll read about how David brought the Ark of the Covenant back into the city of Jerusalem. The Philistines had it. And you'll remember the story. You can read it in the books of Samuel. I chose to read it from the book of 1 Chronicles. When you read 1 Chronicles, you're looking at it more from a priestly perspective. When you're looking at 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, you're looking more at a kingly prophetic approach to the historical aspects of early Hebrew history. When you're looking at it from the standpoint of 1 and 2 Chronicles, you're looking at it more from the standpoint of... Um, 
of the priestly approach. And that's what we have here. And he tells us, 16, when we finally brought that ark back properly, you'll remember when the oxen began to stumble and Uzzah put his hand up there to steady the ark, God struck him dead because David was not bringing the ark back properly. It was to be brought back on the poles and the shoulders of the Levites, and he wasn't doing it the proper way, and God condemned that. But when they decided to check God's word out and do it properly, they brought that ark into the city of Jerusalem, and David is filled with joy. And he gives this great uh, psalm of thanks. And he says in this psalm, verse 25, For great and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Amen to that. But the Lord made the heavens. I'm reading for you First Chronicles 16. I read verse 25 and I read verse 26. And it surely tells us something of the fear and the concept which they had with that of God. And I think this matter of fear is something we need to focus on for a minute. And I don't want to be unkind in any regard to this matter at all, but I think we need a good dose of this. A lot of times, King James Version will use the word fear, and it means to have a a very reverential respect for God. And sometimes that word fear means fear. And that's what they faced. They were afraid of God. They were afraid of being judged by God and afraid of being condemned by God because of the severity of God. And they didn't want that. They didn't want to face that. The word fear meant fear in this context and as David wrote it. And it's not something we want to talk about because if there is an idol today in modern America, it's let's be casual. Let's relax. There's no concern there. You don't have to be concerned about the matter. After all, God is more of a good guy. And he's more of an old gifts. We look upon him as a pal. He's our friend. God's a good old boy. Part of the good old boy club. And there's nothing there that we really have to be concerned about. Let's be casual in our worship of God. Really? Have we forgotten the severity of God? God's our friend. What if the governor of Texas came here today? How would we dress And how would we act if the governor were speaking to us today? Maybe if the president today and we were here and he was here, how would we dress? How would we respond? Would we have more of a respectful, reverential type of attitude in there? I suspect we would. What about God? When we come to the assembly and worship God, have we forgotten the severity of God? 
David made it clear. God is to be feared. And he is severe. And we don't want to forget that. I don't want to forget the good. But I don't want to forget the severity of God. The people of Israel did that. Malachi chapter 1. Let's read it. In Malachi chapter 1, you have a passage, and it's interesting the way Malachi the prophet presents it. Because Malachi says, you know, I'm going to present the will of God, and I'm going to do it in a question-answer type of fashion. Point will be made, question will be given, and answer will be given. I have loved you, he said in chapter 1, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? You see the question? And then he goes on, well, God really hasn't loved us. He's hated us more than anything else. He works his way on down into this point, verse 6, and he's making the point, you've forgotten to give reverence and respect for God. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, and if I am a master, where is my fear? You see, that's our word. Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifices, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Well, you can read the context right on down through the particular matter. And Malachi is giving them a pretty strong statement with regard to the need to show reverence and respect before God in the assembly. And they say, well, how is it that we didn't respect him? Well, the sacrifices that you offered were polluted. The sacrifices that you offered were lame. And they're not part of the old laws it should be. We need a healthy dose of the fear of God. And we need to understand to God. But there's also a severity for God that we better not forget. Because if we do, we'll suffer for it. Job was a man God to be just. If you'll just be just to me, we all want those weights and measures to be right, don't we? And Job was a man who was saying... Well, you know, this is just not right. Uh, If I could just present my case before God, then I'll get it all settled and straightened out. And Job wants justice. Well, that's the point of that story, Sodom and Gomorrah, isn't it? Genesis 18 and 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer is, yes, he will. He will judge properly. And it is a severe judgment because God judges all properly and then I press on the point that we dare not forget the wrath of God we've got to remember that that God is a God of wrath you know it was an old denominational preacher back during the period of the early development of our country his name is Jonathan Edwards Jonathan Edwards was rather famous about God's love and God's grace and he shocked the audience in New England one Sunday morning when he gave that famous sermon sinners in the hands of an angry God and the sermon historians say led to the first awakening the first type of 
Reformation, the Great Awakening, they call it, within this particular country, whereby people realize we are in the hands of an angry God and that we need to understand something about the severity of God and how important it is for us to live for Him and not forget about the wrath of God. Oh, it's wonderful to talk about the goodness of God, the love of God, the grace of God, but let's have a more balanced approach as the Bible presents it that we too must face the wrath of God if we face to obey Him and live for Him. He has taught us. We face His wrath. And it's not anything that anyone would want to face. You know, Jonathan Edwards' sermon, a denominational preacher, very Calvinistic in his approach to things, but yet they say it brought about... I wonder if that could happen today where we'd preach about the wrath of God. And bring about a great awakening. I doubt it. Because we don't preach about it. There wouldn't be any sermons heard about the matter. Because we want only the good side of God. How that God blesses us and makes us feel better. But yet there's another side. Let us not forget, as Paul said in Romans chapter 11 and 22, there is a goodness of God and the severity of God. In Romans chapter 14... Here you have a passage which mentions this great day of judgment and the wrath of God. Verse 10. Why do you on your brother? Now the context of Romans chapter 14 is talking about inconsequential matters. I shouldn't be that way with regard to non-doctrinal type of issues. I shouldn't be judgmental and withdraw my fellowship from those who deserve it. Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to me. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And you ought to mark that passage in Romans 14 and verse 12. It occurs several times in the pages of the Bible. Do not neglect to come to understand the goodness of God but do not neglect and un- to fail and understand the severity of God. Note then the goodness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's goodness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off God's wrath upon the wicked. And I don't want to have to face that. And so I study my Bible and prepare for the great day of judgment, which I'll have to face God one great day. And that's why I repented of my sins. That's why I confess Christ. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I'm not ashamed to say it. That's why I was baptized into Christ for the remission of my sins in accordance with New Testament Scripture, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, because I know there's the wrath of God coming one day against the children of disobedience and is plainly taught in the pages of the Bible. But I want to tell you something. As a child of God, I bask in the goodness and the grace of God. And I'm thankful for His love. And I'm thankful for His forgiveness. And I'm thankful for whereby He sent someone along my way 
and taught me and told me this is what you need to do. And with an obedient heart, I did it. I'm thankful for the several in my list of people that I'm very grateful for and thankful for them taking the time to show me, to teach me, to lead me, and to help me. And I'm grateful for them. Because now, I'll tell you where I'm going. I'm going to heaven. And I'm not going to let anything stand in my way. Am I perfect in that? Absolutely not. But I pray to God and ask for His forgiveness. I prayed before I got up here to preach this morning. Forgive me of my sins. And let me say something that will help people come to understand how great you are. If you've come to understand how great God is, and come to understand of God and want to avoid the severity of God, Romans 11 and 22, I urge you to obey the gospel now. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.